This is the word of Almighty God. Paul writes, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And then over in Galatians chapter 4, picking up in verse 17, as Paul talks about those Judaizers who have not attacked from the outside of the church as he used to do, but those who are members of the church, he writes the following, picking up in verse 17, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. The grass withers, the flower fades. This word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we thank you for Paul's great honesty about himself and his bold assessment of the church. We ask, Lord, if there's even a a glimmer of such things as Paul says in us, that you would expose that grain of it to our hearts this morning so that we might live with a zeal that pleases heaven. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I first moved here, we had children's, children's handouts that we did, and we're trying to get back to that. So if you hear a word repeated, it just means people are listening to the sermon, and that's, that's good. The theme of zeal is a very prevalent one in the scriptures, and I didn't plan yesterday's book discussion, the direction it went, uh, when, when I wrote this sermon. Uh, But the word zeal and the word jealousy, it's the same word in the Hebrew. To be jealous is to be zealous in a relationship. And in the Bible, there are so many things said about zeal. Zeal can be a very good thing. It's right that we, earlier in this service, sang, let us be, uh, uh, that we might have a, a zeal that pleases heaven. And Paul here, uh, I think, implicitly commands that we be zealous when he says it's always good to be zealous for a good thing. In fact, the Psalms, several occasions, call on the people of God to be jealous or zealous about something. And that was the, the inspired hymnal of the Old Testament. God's people were supposed to sing it and pray it 
that God would make them zealous and jealous. And that finds, of course, its, its great consummation when Christ in the temple cleanses worship and the, the, the apostle writes in the gospel that Jesus was zealous for the house of the Lord. It consumed him. We have to adjust our zeal for the house of the Lord to fit our station. We are to imitate Christ, but we aren't Christ. And so our job isn't to be zealous for the house of the Lord by going to the local Roman Catholic church and smashing some statues. Or go into a church that has a book table in the front and flip it over. But nonetheless, the attitude of a passion for doing it for the glory of God, worshiping Him in the way He wants, that's a good thing in the Bible. Of course, the Bible also says a lot about sinful zeal. In fact, uh, I haven't done the math, I haven't gone and counted, but in their book called Living Zealously, uh, Joel Beakey and, and James LaBelle comment that there are more instances of zealous sin in the Bible than zealous obedience. Shouldn't surprise us. Maybe the word doesn't appear next to it. But read the historical books. David was full of a passionate zeal to number the children of Israel. Nothing could divert him from that path, not even his best friend Joab saying, I'm not the most holy guy I know, David, but this is not good. And David had a zeal to do this thing, and he sinned and people died. It was out of a form of zeal that Hezekiah, the the godliest king since David, the second godliest king in the Old Testament, showed off all the wonderful riches of Jerusalem to the men from Babylon. And because of that, God says, there will be a negative result to this prideful zeal you have. They're going to come back to take what you have. And and the examples could go on and on. This this issue of zeal is uh, uh, all throughout Scripture. It's all throughout Scripture. It's in the passages we have before us. Paul says that it was out of a religious zeal. Did did you catch that? He uses a different phrase. He uses zeal for the traditions of the fathers. But realize that as he's writing that, up until... Ten years beforehand, the traditions of the fathers was the true religion. It was a twisted and and, and confused form of it. But that's what it was. That's like saying a zeal for the commentaries of Calvin and Matthew Henry and Charles Spurgeon. There was a lot of good stuff in that tradition. It just wasn't inspired and it wasn't always right. But he had a passion for that. It it was a passion for something that was so intricately tied to the true religion that you couldn't tell the difference most of the time. 
There was a sinful aspect to his zeal. It was misguided and misdirected, but it was a religious zeal. And so was the zeal of those he's combating, these, these Judaizers who have come into the churches of Galatia and have said, yeah, yeah, justification by grace, but not alone. You, you also need circumcision. There's a, a zeal there, a passion. He says the, the zeal and the passion is for what? For them. But if you were to ask them what that zeal and passion was for, they would say, well, no, it's for circumcision. It's for the true religion. The problem was they were mistaking the true religion. They were twisting it in a way that exalted self. Religious zeal, it's, it's a difficult thing, a very difficult thing. It's a difficult thing as, as uh, Jerry Bridges writes, under the title judgmentalism. He writes, it's a difficult thing because when, when we're judgmental, we can think that we're really just being zealous for the right thing. That line between being enthusiastic and passionate in serving King Jesus and obeying his word and a sinful zeal is a very thin line. We don't notice half the time when we cross over it. I hope to end this sermon by suggesting some questions that can help us determine which side of that line our zeal falls on. But it's a difficult thing. Biblical zeal, biblical zeal glorifies God, upholds his name within the church and before the world, and seeks to serve the Lord in the promotion of the Great Commission. I know I just packed a lot in a sentence, but I think that if we want to ask ourselves, what zeal should I have? It should, it should hit those points. My zeal as a Christian should be a zeal for the glory of God. It should uphold his name before the world. Think of Phineas. I don't know why, but I've mentioned Phineas. You should have read it by now. It's been in like three sermons recently. I didn't plan it. But, but Phineas is referred to by God as being zealous for his name. Why? Because the name of the Lord was being degraded. Being brought low. His worship was being disdainfully treated. And so it was out of a, a, a zeal and a passion, a jealousy for the name of God. That he did what he did. And God says that zeal, that jealousy he had for my name made atonement. Astonishing. Go and read it. It's in Numbers. I won't tell you what chapter. Read the book. Uh, zeal has this, this biblical zeal has a glory for God's name. It seeks to uphold his name within the church and before the eyes of the world. When the world looks at your zeal, does it see Jesus lifted high? 
Or does it see something else? And it seeks to serve the Lord in the promotion of the Great Commission. Does my passion for religion promote the going forth of the gospel into all the world with the desire that as people come to Christ, they are, they are baptized and discipled for the rest of their lives? Idolatrous zeal looks a bit different. I, I think there are several things tied up in an idolatrous zeal. First, I say an idolatrous zeal as parallel to sinful zeal because the problem with sinful zeal is that its focus is off. If proper biblical zeal seeks to glorify God, then a sinful zeal seeks to exalt or promote something else. And that's idolatry. And there are two... There are two other respectable sins I'm not going to preach separate sermons on at the moment because I think they they wrap up in here so well. One of them is the sin of pride. A sinful zeal makes us prone to pride. A sinful zeal makes us prone to pride because a sinful zeal often becomes focused on doing something passionately as religion. Pursuing something passionately as religion. And that zeal often includes a form of judging things. And that judging starts with the self. I'm zealous for this religion that I believe is the right religion or this way of doing the right religion. And and so I have to gauge whether or not I'm zealous enough, I'm doing it well enough, so I'm judging myself and one of two things results and one of them is pride. I'm doing it pretty well. Why don't you care as much as I do? There's a self judgment. We'll come back to the you part of that in a moment. But there's a self-judging going on there as well. I'm judging myself based on how zealous I am in contrast to you. And maybe it ends with pride. I'm doing, I'm not bad. Paul says there, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. I'm circumcised. You're not. So my zeal is going to exclude you. You're not in the elite. I am. And what does he mean there when he says that that you may be zealous for them? The idea is that your zeal may take on a praise of the circumcised one. And you would imitate them. Right? There's, There's a... I'm doing really well, and if you want to be a zealous servant of God, you need to do my thing. That's pride. There's a danger of pride there. Of course, there's another problem and sin that that gets tied into a type of zeal that is judging self. I'm zealous to please God, and so I'm going to gauge how well I'm pleasing God. One aspect is pride. The other, of course, is depression. 
Maybe you're slightly more honest with yourself today. I'm not doing so well. My zeal isn't pleasing heaven. And the reality is, an idolatrous zeal is is always at least a little bit, maybe not in print, maybe not by verbal confession, but a, a sinful zeal is always meritorious. I'm doing this to earn God's favor. Maybe I'm doing well, pride. Maybe I'm doing poorly, depression. Idolatrous zeal not only judges self and then is prone to pride and depression, it also judges, of course, others. And see how these two things go together. I I mean, I've already trying to give an example of self-pride judging. You can't do it without other people, right? Our pride is dependent on people who are worse than me. That's what pride's based on so often, isn't it? I'm doing pretty good. How do I gauge that? You're not. That, that judging of others. Think of how Paul even uh, expresses his pre-conversion pride. When he tries to express uh, his pre-conversion pride, he, he talks about, I was more zealous than all of my peers. Just ask me, I would have told you. No one else got a commission to go to Damascus and kill people and put them in prison. No one else so worked up the crowds that he stood and held their coats while they killed that man. That was me, says Paul. No one else was this zealous. I, I was the most righteous. I was the thinniest. That, that's in essence what Paul's saying. In fact, you, you might actually wonder if Saul, who knew the Old Testament really well, ever thought of himself like that. Phineas wanted to defend the, tr- the name of God and, and the true religion and God's way, God's way of doing it. And so he, he took action. And uh, you've got to wonder if Paul ever thought, these people are twisting the true religion. For the glory of the name of Yahweh, I'm going to hold these cloaks and get these people throwing stones. But even his pride is tied into a judging of others. None of my peers were doing this well. Why weren't other Jews doing as much as me? Imagine what could have been done. Christianity could have been crushed immediately if everyone had cared as much as I did. Of course, Paul doesn't think any of those things as he's writing. But, but you, can, you can sense he's trying to communicate the zeal he had before as he writes. In fact, he hints at it a little bit in another place when he talks about his pre-converted experience. He said, I kept all the law of God until I came to the 10th. And then I saw I'd broken it all. But don't think of that as Paul just once in his young life having picked up the Ten Commandments and read the scroll and thought in a five-minute period, check, 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 and then got into the last and said, oh no, I've broken them all. He's saying that he lived a life in which he really thought he kept them all. 
And that over a period of time, he really thought he'd done it until the Holy Spirit exposed to his heart that tenth one. He judged himself, but he was judging others in the process. One of the things that a sinful zeal does in the church to assist us in judging each other it flattens it flattens the scriptures teachings but what i mean by that is there are things that are commanded and things that are left up to wisdom sinful zeal can't tell the difference beaky and, and labelle put it really well in their book They write, Scripture alone has the authority to declare the necessary points of belief or practice in our salvation. If Scripture classifies something as a necessary belief, something like the resurrection of Christ, or an incumbent duty, something like forgiving one another, that belief cannot be maintained and performed with too much zeal. Pause there in the quote. Make sure you caught that. If the scriptures say that a necessary belief is believing in the resurrection of Christ, you cannot believe that with too much zeal. If the scriptures say that you have a duty to forgive one another, you cannot pursue that with too much zeal. Back to the quote. But if scripture assigns the matter to the realm of Christian liberty, it would be wrong to be overly passionate about one side or the other. Matters of liberty call more for love than for zeal. End quote. I hope you you see what sinful zeal does, though. Sinful zeal says the Bible teaches the resurrection of Christ. The Bible teaches to forgive one another. And uh, the Bible might have some, some wisdom teaching about certain other areas of our lives or how we approach things. And all of these are necessary on the same level. And so we take those things that aren't a direct command, aren't a declared doctrine, and we judge other people on whether or not they uphold all three with equal emphasis. Uh, I think Bridges gives some really helpful examples of this in, in Respectable Sins. If you go and read the chapter on judgmentalism, I, I don't agree with everything he says in that chapter, but, but it's very helpful in getting you to think. The first things he points out, he talks about when he was a kid. Uh, everyone showed up to church. If you were a man, there was the jacket and the tie. And if you were a woman, there was either a skirt or a dress. And then in the 70s, he said... Uh, men started using more casual uh, pants and maybe uh, no shirt and the collar unbuttoned. Uh, 
And women sometimes wore pants to church. And he he comments, it was really hard for me at first. Until I made myself examine myself and the scriptures. And the Bible doesn't say thou shalt wear dress or skirt. It doesn't say thou shalt wear this funny cloth thing around your neck for no apparent reason. Uh, It doesn't. And, and then he talks a bit about how he, he assessed, okay, so, so why did we do it? And why do I still care? Even though I have to acknowledge it's not a command in Scripture. And Bridges brings himself to think, well, the reason I care is because it, it, it might indicate the seriousness and the reverence I'm bringing to worship. But then he said, I can't read other people's hearts. It might not express the reverence that you're bringing to worship. And although he doesn't quite say it like this, my takeaway from that section, and maybe I'm misapplying it to him, but I would say this. You know, I can judge my own heart on this and say if if I showed up in a Pat's jersey to church, it would probably indicate in my heart that I wasn't taking this very seriously. I'm allowed to make that judgment. But I can't necessarily say the same thing for you. Because the scripture doesn't tell me I'm allowed to. And nor do I have the omniscience to know it. So so I, I think Bridges helpfully brings you to this point of saying what you wear to church might matter. But it's not to be the source of our zeal for judging one another. Because we shouldn't on that that was i had to think a lot about that because i bill and i were just talking about dressing up for church recently i didn't even remember that bridges had talked about it when we talked about that uh, it, it's not an unimportant discussion to have it's just one to have with caution and with a lot of grace uh, bridges uses a, another example um music he talks about how much he loves traditional hymns and talks about when, when praise stuff in the 70s started becoming more prevalent. He, he thought, you know, this, this is just one for it to go from an organ and a piano to a guitar and a drum. Ugh, we're losing something. And he talks about, uh, you know, all of this new stuff is flippant. And then he said, I stopped. I said to myself, well, one, there's no organs in the Bible. There are drums in the Psalms. Bridges doesn't say that. Well, I'll just acknowledge it. Uh, uh, and, and Bridges said, some of these new praise songs and hymns are really deep and theologically rich and beautiful. And some of the old hymns weren't. So, so judging these things just like that, that's, that's not a good approach. We need to take things uh, piece by piece and uh, not let judgmentalism invade. I think that's true for zeal. Judgmentalism comes out of a, a zeal. But it's not a zeal directly rightly. And often it's a zeal that imbalances the teaching of Scripture. Be zealous for the good thing always. But some things are 
better to be zealous about than others. Because God shows more zeal for them in the Bible than for other things. I actually think the, the, the letters to the Corinthians is a good example of Paul trying to put this in practice. Because they were so bad. And there are things that even when he writes his letters, he encourages them to do that, that the other churches didn't even need to do those things because even those things were not ideal. In Corinthians, uh, Paul is setting up the air worship is so bad, the minimum of some things should be this. But some of the other churches, they were above those minimum things. They were already worshiping better than that. But Paul addresses them with what is the minimum for you to be biblical and faithful. Not what does the best church out there look like. And actually, you notice he never does that in Corinthians. He never says... Why don't you just imitate the church in Philippi? They're the best. Or why don't you just imitate the church in Ephesus? They're so faithful. In fact, Christ doesn't do that when he writes the seven letters either, does he? He doesn't contrast between churches which ones are, right? He writes to each one about their faithfulness to him. But judgmentalism, it it makes all of our thoughts on religion equal in importance. All of that, I think, is really to say that sinful zeal is grace-stifling. It's grace-stifling. That's the simple way to assess your Christian zeal. Does your zeal stifle grace or not? So here are three questions to try to help us assess ourselves as to whether our zeal is God-glorifying or not. They are all basically the same point, but I'm going to word it three different ways to try to help us uh, assess. Maybe one of the ways I word it will get through where another one wouldn't. So first... To assess my zeal, whether it's Christian zeal or sinful zeal, does my zeal remember its chief end? Does my zeal remember its chief end? Which is? (laughs) Good. Okay. (laughs) To glorify God and enjoy him forever. But, but we all know that we can be zealous about the wrong thing. Does my zeal remember that the, not just the good thing that it's good to be zealous about, but the best thing, the ultimate thing, the reason I exist is to glorify God. So does your zeal glorify God the Father? Glory in God. And glorify Him in heart, in actions, and in words. As well as 
seeking through our glorifying God the Father to promote the glory of God the Father in others. Idolatrous zeal has as its object, typically, I think, doing things a precise way. That's part of that imbalance of things in Scripture. The commands, the gospel, and then wisdom. And bumping wisdom up onto that level playing field, it's trying to make a checklist for ourselves and others. And then if we just do it the right way, if I'm passionate enough and do all these things the right way, and so often it loses the focus on why you would do those things in the first place. Why, Jerry Bridges, would you wear a tie to church? If, if no one else is doing it, Jerry Bridges, why would you wear a tie to church? Is it because you're the only faithful one in the world? Or is it because it helps your heart worship God rightly? By getting a certain attitude in your mind. There's a vast difference between two approaches to doing the exact same thing. I picked that one, by the way, because I don't think any of you fight over that one. So I thought it was a great example to use today in examining ourselves. Second. So the first question is, does my zeal remember its chief end to glorify God the Father? Second, does my zeal promote the grace of Jesus Christ? Same question asked a different way. Does my passion and my jealousy for the name of God and the glory of him, does it promote the grace of Jesus Christ? Too much religious zeal distracts from the gospel, doesn't it? Just think about how the world thinks about the concept of zeal in a Christian. You think of it as being someone who's a nut. Someone who's an extremist. Why is that? Well, partially it's because the world looking on is blind. They, they don't see the beauty of the gospel. But part of it's because there are a lot of religious nuts out there calling themselves Christians who make the wrong things the main thing. Sometimes they make even good things that are lesser things the main thing. Does your zeal promote the grace of Jesus Christ over all things? It's actually just yesterday talking to a Credo Baptist pastor friend, and he brought up how even though he holds his view of baptism, having studied both sides and prayed about it a lot, he holds to the credo position, um, but that just this year he's been really feeling like he, he really doesn't want that to detract from his ability to communicate the beauty of the gospel of John to people who baptize their kids. And, and I think he knew when we were talking, I'm sure he knows my position on that same topic. And we were having this conversation about how it's so easy to get distracted from the gospel itself 
as a pastor. By other things that really do matter. Whether I get to heaven and find out he's right, or he gets to heaven and find out I was right. Baptism matters. What you believe about baptism matters. It doesn't matter as much as salvation by the blood of Jesus Christ alone. Because whatever your view of it is, it better include that baptism points to the cleansing blood of Christ. If we're so focused on the other things about that important topic that we lose the blood of Christ, then the rest doesn't matter anyway. But it's so easy to become passionate about that. It's okay to be passionate about it in the right proportion. In a proportion that doesn't stifle the expression of the grace and mercy of the gospel of Jesus Christ for sinners. And I think we can, we can also challenge ourselves on this point in terms of how we live. The grace of Christ and the gospel of Christ includes looking at how Christ lived. We're given four gospels to show us what his interactions with others looked like. What did they look like? Jesus Christ is the God of creation. He is the one who could never be proud because he is owed all things. And yet he humbled himself and he walked among sinners. He didn't even have a home. He spoke with people who had sinned their whole lives in very grotesque ways at times. He, he befriended terrorists. Remember, one of his apostles was a zealot. He was a terrorist before. Before. He befriended prostitutes who lived in Israel. They knew the law, and they broke it anyway. He called to repentance, but it was a repentance Unto the grace of God and a kingdom that renewed. And as he engaged with such sinners, he did so in a gracious manner, even though their sins had been against the God of the universe, which was him. So, part of the question in Does my zeal, does my zeal promote the grace of Christ is. Does my way of interacting with others, is it gracious? What a hypocrisy to have a doctrine of grace and a graceless attitude. Which is so easy for us to have. So easy for us to have. Ironically, we can even have it about our doctrine of grace and how superior we are to people who don't have the doctrine of grace. 
and be graceless in those conversations. And we can be graceless in so many ways in our lives. Does our way of living communicate grace? And that requires us to have our priorities right. I was trying to think of an example. I'm picking a worship example, but one that I, I think could be helpful here today. We, we receive from the Lord two aesthetic images. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. They are aesthetic, aren't they? They're tangible. And so it's a beautiful thing that when uh, the the members of this church today, Terry, sets up the, the Lord's table for us to partake of this sacrament that has been given tangibly, that the presentation also be aesthetically pleasing. That that presentation, I'm sure, helps some of you when we come to the Lord's table have a a joyous frame of mind. I I know there's a couple of you who don't care about aesthetics and it could be on a card table with no plates under it even, and you would be fine with that. But most of you are helped, right, by it being set up nicely and aesthetically. I, I fear sometimes, though, in the church of Jesus Christ, we have the zeal for the wrong thing as we come to the table. Where if we were faced with a challenge, we can have the table set up really nicely, but I have some form of bitterness or tension between me and you. We'll come to the nicely set up table and partake of this sacrament of communion without fellowship with each other. As opposed to the other option that we make things right with each other before worship so we could be at this table. I'm only picking Terry here because she's the one that sets up, so don't misapply it. But what if I have a thing against Terry or she has a thing against me? And there's only time for Terry to do one of two things. Be made right with me before worship or set the table up. Would you all be able to joyfully stand around this table and partake if there was no cloth on it? If, the, if we had to pass around the, the grape juice container? I get that it wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't be ideal. But which is more important? See, our, our sinful zeal, it puts the priority in the wrong places. <clears throat> That doesn't mean that they're not both important, but one's infinitely more important. Why? Because one expresses the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, one to another, and the fellowship we have in that grace. Which brings me to the third and shortest of these questions, to gauge yourself and assess your own zeal. First, does my zeal remember its chief end to glorify the Father? Second, does my zeal promote the grace of Jesus Christ? Third, Does my zeal reveal the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Does my zeal reveal that the Holy Spirit lives in me? Why do I pick that? Well, as we read the scriptures, we find again and again that the Spirit dwelling in me 
is the spirit of unity and brotherly love. Or, or it, should, it should be, right? The Holy Spirit is the spirit of unity and brotherly love. One example, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness. That's a relationship thing, isn't it? Lowliness and gentleness, me to you. With long-suffering, another relationship thing. Am I going to be long-suffering with you? Bearing with one another in love, endeavoring through all of those things to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were all called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit who guides you to live with each other with long-suffering and patience, with humility and gentleness in love. So if your religious zeal doesn't promote that, I, I think we have to ask, what am I zealous about? Am I zealous about me? Or am I zealous with that zeal that the Holy Spirit creates in the body of Christ? All these things, of course, go together. Grace always abounds over sins in the elect. We are wrongfully zealous about doing the law rightly if grace is shoved aside in the process, for grace brings glory to God. And bringing glory to God unites those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. So beloved, does your zeal promote the glory of God in the gracious unity with fellow believers in the Holy Spirit? It's a lot to pray about there.